I'm the kind of person who runs towards fear. And usually it's like running towards it, like screaming with panic. <laughs> it's not brave at all. It's just a complete panic attack. Hey, welcome back. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ and A from The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. Today, I'm talking to the author Akweke Amezi. They grew up in Nigeria and made a huge splash a couple years ago with their debut novel, Freshwater. If you read it and were wowed by it like me, then good news. They've got a brand new book out called The Death of Vivek Oji. And yes, Vivek dies, but it's also one of the most surprisingly romantic books I've read in a while. Something that I think we need more of when it comes to queer and trans characters. Although those are titles, queer and trans, that Vivek wouldn't use himself, but more on that in the interview. So let's hear it. This is Akweke Amezi talking about their brand new book, The Death of Vivek Oji. It's available on August 4th. I want to jump into the new book. It takes place in Nigeria, and I thought it was so interesting how people in the book describe Vivek. They say things like they're possessed, they're sick, they talk about fixing them, but we never use labels like queer or trans. Can you talk about why you made that choice in writing it? Well, one of the first reasons was that Vivek is set in the Nigerian community that I grew up in. And growing up, queer and trans just weren't part of our vocabulary at all. It also is a very Western thing, these specific labels. And I wanted to write a story about a queer kid who doesn't need to use these specific labels to still be what they are. Is that why the book also doesn't contain what we've seen in the Western world as like a traditional coming out moment, that like big theatrical sit down where like Vivek says like, this is who I am? I think that's also a very... Western narrative. In some ways, I think it's even a harmful one because there's this sense that your progression is linear, right? That you live in a closet and then you come out and then your life is magically better because you can now live freely as yourself. And what that implies is that your life before was inauthentic. And so I wanted to write something like that for Vivek a world in which he doesn't have to come out because he's already himself to the people who see him and the people that matter to him most. So with that, I thought it was really interesting. One of the lines from the book, I wrote it down. Vivek couldn't end up like those lynched bodies at the junction, blackened by fire and stiffened, large gashes from machetes showing old red flesh underneath. Is that how you saw queerness being treated growing up in Nigeria? Oh, that's not about queerness at all. That's just a thing that happened (laughs) back home. So I grew up in this town in the South in the late 90s, and we had a lot of religious violence and a lot of electoral violence. And there were a lot of lynchings. The reasons were often varied and arbitrary. Oh, this person looks like a thief. This person looks like a Muslim. This person is from the North. Therefore, they are Muslim. Therefore, they are complicit in the murders of the people from the South that were happening in the North. It gets very layered. But in the book, it is, it's not so much that this is what would happen specifically to queer people as it is. This is something that could happen to you if you were in the wrong place 
at the wrong time. Being deviant would be part of that. Being identified as a thief, whether you stole anything or not, would be part of that. It's a whole range of possibilities. Oh, so that's talking about violence more generally. I think that probably I was drawing then the false connection because in Nigeria, they passed the same-sex marriage prohibition act in 2014. So I think I was drawing that connection for like that act to like the violence, but it's not just violence towards queer people. Yeah, it's, it's violence towards a lot of people. <laughs> Vivek is set in the late 90s where that wasn't even that wasn't even a law yet. I mean, the law is interesting because people might use it as an excuse, but you do still have the intolerance. Even if that law wasn't there, queer people wouldn't necessarily be any safer, you know? You know, I have to tell you, the name of the book is The Death of Vivek Oji. Death is in the title. It's in the very first line of the book. And yet I think that when I finished it, I was struck and surprised by how romantic it was. Yes, I was very proud of what I was able to do with that in the book because I wanted it to really be about his life and the specific life he had with his immediate community, with his friends, with Osita, and what that that looked like. Also, I was just really happy to get to write sex scenes. Like those were really my favorite parts of the book. I guess too, writing sex scenes must have been a nice change having just done a YA novel. Yes. And even with Freshwater, the sex scenes there aren't sexy in my mind because there's always a question of consent in every single one of the sex scenes in Freshwater. So to me, it to me, Freshwater doesn't have sex scenes. <laughs> it just has a lot of really violent encounters that are masked to look like sex scenes. And when I said that this book was romantic, you said that you were happy that you were able to do that. Did you not set out to do that originally? I really was wondering if I would be able to pull it off. This is not a spoiler because you find out like in the first two chapters because they're cousins. Right. (laughs) And one of the things I wanted to do was write a relationship that was transgressive just because I'm interested in those and still have it be romantic and still have the reader believe in that love and be rooting for it, even though if you had worded it differently and just told them on the surface, hey, this is what's about people might easily be like, ew, what, really? But then you read the book and you're on the inside of it and you're carried along with that. I don't, like, is it inappropriate to use the word incest? I'm not (laughs) sure. Because culturally, if you think about it, first cousins marry all the time in a variety of cultures across the world. People start calling it like a redneck thing and it's assigned to a particular group of people, which I thought was interesting because... If you look wider around the world, it's way more normalized. Like my grandparents are related to each other. I'm not sure how many cousins removed they are, but it's it's a thing, you know? And so I wanted to kind of push back against the ick factor that people have around some of it and have them kind of explore their own feelings and see what that brings up within themselves. Right. And I think that like halfway through the book, I was shocked that I was rooting for them to get together because it it felt so easy and normal. And that surprised me. Yes. Mission accomplished. (laughs) 
Also, maybe that makes it an interesting read for people too, to reading about this relationship that they don't support, that, that does make them feel icky. We don't have to only read things that make us comfortable. Yes, agreed. <laughs> Speaking about things that you've learned about yourself, you said that writing Freshwater, your first book, that there was a me that existed before that book and a me that existed after that book. Why was that book so challenging and um, influential on yourself, for lack of better words, compared to your other writing? Well, Freshwater is a book that shifts realities. Before I wrote it, you know, I'd been raised Christian. My mother's family is very Catholic. We have nuns. We have Carmelite nuns in the family, an archbishop, very Catholic. And when I started thinking about Freshwater, I know I, I knew I would have to get into Igbo traditional religion. And that was scary to me because it's not something we were raised with back home. It's seen as deviance. And so shifting gears to see the world through these through this lens of a religion that had been almost stamped out by colonialism. And in order to write Freshwater, I not just had to engage with it, but I had to adopt it as my center. I had to say, this is real. This is as real as every other reality, including Christianity, including the whole mental health world. Like this is valid and real. And that's a really challenging step to take. My life made so much more sense through this lens than it had through any of the other lenses. And it wasn't like a jacket I could put on and then take off when I was done with the book. It was a jacket I put on and then I was like, oh, this is my skin now. Fantastic. Is that where Obanje comes from? That the, the Igbo ethnic group and that religion? Yes, that and it's kind of more than a religion. It's like a it's an entire reality. Like our system of law comes from it as well. It's an Igbo reality to be very specific, I think. I, I guess I was curious about what you said because it is something that you had to seek out and learn for yourself as an adult, it sounds like you didn't grow up learning these things. No, I didn't. Yeah. It was something I had to figure out as an adult. Wow. So like what started you on that journey? Was it Freshwater, the book? It was being extremely suicidal, actually. Um, About 10 years ago, I had just moved to New York and I was really suicidal. Yeah. And I had been for a while, actually, for most of what I could remember of my life. (laughs) And I started painting randomly it felt like a way to kind of get some of the frustration about being alive out and a lot of the paintings I did were about Obanji I was familiar with it as a concept because it shows up in our literature so the most well-known example of an Obanji previously was um, in Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart there's a character who's an Obanji and so like we knew what it was but again it's not considered real You know, it's considered just a part of like a myth, essentially. And when I started painting, a lot of it was around this theme of wanting to go home. And I didn't understand it. I was just painting what I felt, which was that being alive felt wrong and that I shouldn't be here. And so I started really just thinking about the, I wish there was a simpler word than ontology. (laughs) I really do. But I started thinking about that. And I was like, well, what if you are the child of a deity and you are meant to exist in the spirit world and you accept that as real? And what does that look like? 
And freshwater kind of came from that. So Banje is a, a spirit. Is it, is it gendered? It is not gendered. And it's a very specific type of spirit. It's a spirit that is embodied in a human form. So it's not like a, a lot of people tend to tell it as like a narrative of possession, because then you get the binary of human and spirit. And then you have, you know, the host human who is possessed by a spirit, but really the binary doesn't exist there. It's one entity. It is a spirit in like flesh, mortal form. And so as you've explained it before, you say that the spirit is there to allegedly torment the mother by dying. And it's born and dying repeatedly. That's what the stories say. <laughs> That's how it goes, is that they're meant to be kind of malevolent and they die and then they come back. Yeah. I mean, it's also not lost on me that you have dead thing tattooed on your chest. Yes. <laughs> when in the process of discovering that you were an Obanje, did you get that tattoo? That tattoo is actually recent. I think I got it last summer or within the last year. I got it within the last year. And, you know, the word Obanje literally translates to, well, roughly literally translates to someone who comes and goes, like the ones, and Obanjis are referred to the ones who are born to die. And so it's kind of like dead man walking. You know, it's like if you are a thing that is born to die, then you're dead even while you're alive. And kind of an acceptance of death in the process of life. Interestingly, this pops up in a lot of other places. I was reading Rumi pretty extensively once, and there are quotes in there that say, you know, in order to live kind of a new life, you have to die first in this one and like the death of self and what that looks like. So all those things kind of, you know, work around in my brain. I think too that when we say the LGBTQ experience, we're most often saying the Western LGBTQ experience. And that is also translated to how we talk about and experience death, that it's like a Western experience, that someone dies and you don't talk about it. Right? <laughs> They're gone forever. Yes, that's so true. A lot of the times what people, I find that what people are opposed to around death is not so much death, but suffering. You know, it's either the suffering of the person leading up to their death, the suffering of the people left behind, the loved ones. And that's something I kind of explore in the death of Vivek Oji is, is death really a tragic thing to whom? Which perspective are we looking at it from? Is it just transitioning from one state of being to another state of being? And because, you know, if you're the dead person, you're just dead. You know, you don't have feelings about it. <laughs> you're just not here anymore. But what we often have a strong reaction to is suffering. You know, if you died in a painful way, if you suffered before you died. For me, it's been important to kind of draw that distinction. In many ways, the book is a book about the things that the Western world tells us we cannot talk about, right? Death, incest, queerness. <laughs> I'm glad I was able to to stitch it together. And, you know, actually, also the thing is, in a lot of other cultures, death isn't even a, oh, you stop existing. There's a lot of things where it's like, oh, you die and then you keep existing in a different form. And then you go into ghosts and then you go into reincarnation, which is a huge part of the death of Vivek Aji. I like to talk about death a lot, also because of just 
And I think this is an experience for a lot of queer people is that death really is a constant companion with us specifically and its presence in a way that other people might not think about either at the hands of other people or you know death by suicide it's a thing that's always that's always there i think it's important to be able to talk about it because it affects so much of our lived experience for sure You've talked about your first book, and I think you've described it as weird, right? It's not like a book that most people are used to reading. I would also say that Vivek is a book that most people are not used to reading. And yet, are you surprised by how much people are able to relate to your work, given that? I was definitely surprised with Freshwater. Very much underestimated readers. Also because it was my first book, and it was scary to put out a book like that as a as a debut. Sometimes I wonder how things would have been different if I had changed the orders of my book. Sometimes I think about Freshwater as a book that if I was a different kind of writer, I might have done as a later in my career book, you know, when you're established enough to write something like that. (laughs) With Vivek, it's odd because to me, Vivek is so conventional. (laughs) just by comparison and pet was extremely conventional to me because I was like look I wrote a book that's just in one narrative voice and the book proceeds in a linear fashion I'm living on the edge here people (laughs) just to clarify what you're saying did you debate whether or not you wanted to release fresh water first yes I actually debated whether I should write fresh water first at all I had another book that I wanted to write that was based on a short story that had done pretty well the year, like the year I started writing Freshwater. And it was about, the short story was set in Lagos and it was pretty transgressive and it's basically around a sex party that happens there. And I had to make this choice and I was just like, okay, look, a book about a sex party in Lagos is going to do phenomenally like come on that I I want to read that already (laughs) I'm ready (laughs) versus this weird little spiritual book and then this other writer in Numa Okoro we were at a writing workshop together and I was telling her you know this dilemma I had because everyone was saying you know your debut is your debut it's your first impression you know your whole career depends on your first impression to me the sex party book was like the safe book you know it's set in Nigeria it's narrated by humans, not spirits. <laughs> and then Enuma, the other writer, she said that I should write Freshwater because that was the book I was scared of writing. So she said, lean into the fear, write the one you're scared of writing because there's a reason you're scared of that. And that aligns with a philosophy I have about fear, which is I'm the kind of person who runs towards fear because it just seems to make more sense to me. If I run away from it, it's just going to keep chasing me and get bigger and bigger. But if I run toward it, hopefully I can run through it and dissipate it. Um, and usually it's like running, running towards it, like screaming with panic. <laughs> it's not brave at all. It's just a complete panic attack. But that was why I decided to, to do Freshwater, because it was the one I was unsure about and scared of. And I didn't want to give in to the fear. So I was like, I will go with the book that does not feel safe at all. You know, talking about running towards fear, I think that a lot of people would be afraid of cutting off the massive, long, beautiful hair that we see in your author photo. (laughs) (laughs) 
Looking at you now, you have very short blonde hair. Was that a big decision for you? I have shaved my head before. Interestingly, this time it it was scary for me to cut it again, mostly because I was worried it would trigger like body dysmorphia issues from my childhood. And I thought that I had to be really, really skinny to be able to pull off short hair. And once I told my friends that, and they realized that that was the reason I had been keeping my hair long, they were all like, cut it now, <laughs> running towards fear. They were like, cut it now. And and I didn't want to keep living in fear of something. And also I felt like it would kind of strip away a certain attractiveness, you know, like a certain kind of conventional attractiveness. Like, well, you know, if you have long hair, it's pretty. I grew my hair deliberately for my book career. Like I grew it on purpose because I was like, you know what? When my books come out, I want to have really, really long hair. I just feel like it'll work better. It was very mercenary and like very calculating about, you know, how society views beauty and how I was planning to take advantage of every single thing I could in order to make myself feel more established. And people will say, oh, well, you know, it made no difference. We will never know. It couldn't hurt. It couldn't hurt. And that's like fucked up to say, but it couldn't hurt. (laughs) It couldn't hurt. Wow. So I was like, you know what? Let me... Let me shave it off. Let me see what happens if I don't feel attractive, if other people aren't finding me conventionally attractive, if I step into like deviance in a certain way and just kind of sit with that to not really in terms of like body positivity, but body neutrality, where I'm just like, it's okay to just have a body. Like it exists. I'm a dead thing anyways. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I think that most people would be really freaked out by choosing to eliminate conventional beauty from themselves as you describe it you know like running towards that choice i mean the truth is that there's only so much that i could run away from that like there are all these other things that despite what body dysmorphia i have in terms of what society deems as beautiful or I already, I check a lot of those boxes, whether I shave off my hair or not. I guess for me, I tend to think of it as something that's just something personal that I was working out with myself and not so anything like radical anything because I'm just like, it's, it's not really, it's just, I shaved my head, done it before, shaved off my eyebrows. I was like, let's see what you look like. If you look like a little alien. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's, it's less of, it's for you. Exactly. It's for you. I gotcha. Before we run out of time, I want to ask a couple questions that are pretty spoilerly. So if people don't want to hear that, I think they're light spoilers, but just in case, um, feel free to turn the podcast off. No, 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 don't turn off. Just fast forward. <laughs> but if not, I want to ask about the decision to dead name the character in the title of the book. Like, was that a worry or a qualm of yours? Ooh, so many spoilers. So spoiler alert, spoiler alert. <laughs> so... Vivek is gender non-conforming, I think would be the Western translation of his identity. But there's only one point in the book where really something is said, I think there's only one point, where something is said explicitly about how he identified. And it's said by his friends, by the people who were closest to him. And it says that he was okay with 
either or. And so that was something where I was like, what does it look like to not buy into, again, a very Western binary about, well, this was one name and then you have another name and that means that everything before was invalid. Your identity before was invalid. Your self-expression before was invalid. And I wanted readers to kind of sit with the thing of Vivek was valid the entire time. Like, no matter what he wore, no matter what pronoun she used, like, Vivek was Vivek and Nemdi the entire time. And really, the conflict that Vivek goes through isn't about gender or sexuality. It's a spiritual one. Um, and part of the reason why I had even kind of gone into that was, you know, coming off of Freshwater and this interest in Igbo culture and Igbo reality. And I had been talking to a friend back home who told me a story about how he was born with the same scar that his grandfather had. And on the day he was born, his grandmother, who was in a completely different town and no one had told her anything about the birth, she called his parents and she said, my husband has come back. Make sure you name him properly. And so in Igbo language, like a lot of our names are reincarnation names. Namdi, my father is still alive. Nena, the mother of my father. Like reincarnation is a huge thing. And now people just say, well, you know, we're just naming you in honor of your grandfather, but it's a reincarnation thing. And I wanted to play with this idea, which is fictional, <laughs> um, of what happens if a child is reincarnated and they don't recognize the child as a reincarnation because of the agenda that they assigned to the child and say so they don't name the child properly. And what if this just causes spiritual turmoil because they didn't name the child properly and the child reaches peace when they find out what their name was supposed to be. It's a thing about naming and spirit, not about gender, it's actually. about his spirit, not his gender. Yeah. I love that answer because... I also felt like at the end of the book, Vivek dies. And I also felt like like he had got his spirit, like he found himself. And so it wasn't uh, like we'd already mourned actually Vivek in other chapters. Like we see like the mom going through that. And so we kind of got that out of our system so that when he did die in the final pages, it was like, you're kind of at peace with it in a really as transgressive way. Yeah. And I think also, you know, Part of the thing of recognizing every step of the journey as legitimate is an important part for how we treat queer kids in the world today, because, you know, Vivek is, it's a coming of age story and it's not a linear journey for people. You know, like you find people who like their identity shift constantly and it's like, oh, well, I feel I'm this. And then you figure out your sexuality and it's like, oh. Gender entered the chat, and now you figure that out. And it doesn't mean that whoever you were before, whoever you identified as, like, wasn't real. It just means that the story is, like, varied instead of a linear from here to here, and then you end up at a true place. What if we recognize that all those different points in the journey are true places as well? I love that. I think that's an amazing place to leave it at, too. Thank you for this. I think it's been fantastic to talk to you. It's been a delight. 
That was Akweke and Mezzi. Their new novel, The Death of Vec Oji, is out on August 4th. If you enjoyed the interview, please make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast, where you'll also be hearing from the novelist Brandon Taylor in a couple weeks, so get excited for that. And in the meantime, come find me on social media. I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. The show is on Twitter at LGBTQPod. We love hearing from you every week, so thank you for connecting and helping us to spread the word. LGBTQ is produced by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with Glad. Come check out all of our amazing work at advocate.com and glad.org. All right, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'll see you next week. Bye.